Hi, I'm Sunny Dean. And I'm Scott Drakeford. And this is the Publishing Rodeo podcast. In 2022, we both launched debut novels in the same genre with the same publisher in the same year. But despite having very similar starts, our books and subsequently each of our careers went in very different directions. That pattern repeats itself throughout the industry over and over. Why do some books succeed while others seem to be dead on arrival? In this podcast, we aim to answer those questions and many more, along with how to build and maintain an author career. Everyone signing a contract deserves to know what they're really signing up for. In an industry that loves its secrets, we'll be sharing real details from real people. We'll cover the gamut of life as a big five published author, from agents to publishing contracts, finances, and more. I'm so I've looked through it before and I'm looking through it again your your PowerPoint on your your whole study and god it, it's so good like I just want I just want to like I'm glad you liked it <laughs> have you walk everybody through it I want you to just like walk everybody through it but they won't have the visual and I I mean son you can put the link in the show notes yeah we could link it if you wanted. Yeah. 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 That'd be a, that'd be a good idea. This is going to be a show and tell episode today. I can link it on the Instagram and all the social feeds. <laughs> so let's let's back up. Yeah. I'm noting that. Uh, God, I have to like look around my camera to see my goddamn. I am I am flustered today. But yeah, let's do an intro first. Tell us just who you are and you know why you ended up doing this and all that. Yeah, Sunny, go ahead. It's all you. Right. Uh, so today on the Publishing Radio podcast, we have with us Dr. Carrie Spencer Prey, who I first encounter as Mrs. Frizzle. I, I'm guessing that's a reference to Mrs. Frizzle's Magic School Bus on Twitter. And she did a brilliant thread about how marketing and sales are linked, where books basically can't perform outside of you can't perform sales wise outside of their marketing bracket and I thought that was really fascinating because at the time I was still always hunting for information about how Tradpub worked and how my own industry worked and I bookmarked that thread and then earlier this year when we started our podcast I circled back around to it and sent it to Scott and was like we should see if this person would like to come on and chat to us because I, I think there's so much good information there and he was blown away by the, the slides and the, the research he's done. So if you'd like to introduce yourself, that would be absolutely brilliant. We are very thrilled to have you on. Well, hello. I'm glad to be here. My name is Dr. Carrie spencer Prey. <laughs> I'm a, um, I assistant professor of writing at Stevenson University, which is in Maryland in the United States. The thing we're talking about today is my mostly my dissertation research, which the impetus for it goes all the way back to 2008. So in 2008, I had my first sort of fiction book that was on the market. My agent was shopping it around and we were starting to get some interest in it. There was a, a couple publishers. One of them started talking to us. We were talking about acquisition talks and starting to do a little of the negotiations. And then, I don't know if you guys remember 2008, but there was like this massive crash in the entire economy. And there was this day in publishing where in a single day, they lost like two years worth of revenue or something in returns alone. And what happened, they shut all of New York shut down. It shut down fast and hard and all new acquisitions were canceled. All new contracts were suspended. They had like 
everything just like all the doors closed all at once and so that book was was dead and my agent was like well we've already shopped this manuscript we don't know when new york is going to be reopening so all you, you just you just need to write another book and i was at the time i was like i don't want to write another book like that is hard like book reading is hard and it takes time and this is like depressing and so i was like instead i'm gonna get a phd <laughs> so i did that instead um i went to the university of wales in bangor in in the uk i did that because hey. i already had a master's degree and i was interested in a creative writing program but they didn't really have phds and i didn't want another master's degree i thought it'd be um i was already teaching part-time at the at the university that i was was at near i was living here in in utah and so I started this PhD program and I decided because I was fresh off this like deeply humiliating isn't the right word. It was sad. Like I, it was heartbreaking <laughs> like to like have yeah. a book and work so hard on it and get an agent and like be about to sell it and then have like the entire bottom like just taken out. And it was back sort of in the days when Twilight was super, super popular. And I... My book was different than Twilight, but like not like <laughs> I was I, I was Mormon back then. That's a whole other story. And, and, and Stephanie also was Mormon and was in the same circles I was. And I just didn't understand, like, why was this book doing amazing? And why was my book dead? Like it didn't I didn't understand like it like from I couldn't. And I, and I have sort of a, a data brain like I studied engineering as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And then I w got a master's degree in early Brit lit, but I had done like a lot of language studies and software things for that. I worked for um, Oxford's Canterbury Tales project where we digitized and transcribed all of the existing manuscripts of the Canterbury Tales. Um, and then we use cladistic analysis, which is from evolutionary biology to start to like look for connections. I had to do a dissertation for my PhD, and so I decided I was gonna gonna decide to study what makes books sell or not sell. And it was sort of like everyone was really shocked by this question when I like it was like this like forbidden question: Why are you like what what sells or not sells? Like obviously yeah. a book, if it's good, it will sell. Or obviously like we don't ask that question. That's like a debasement of art. And I was like I was writing young adult fiction <laughs> primarily at the time, and I'm like, listen, young adult fiction is literally defined by the market. It's not a real genre it's a market category and so like you have to understand the market if you're gonna write YA and so they they decided to let me do it they're sort of amused by like the little chaos gremlin apparently that I appeared to them at the time <laughs> wanting to know why books sell or not and so I I met with the statistician and we came up with like a plan and I um, started a sample I collected a sample initially of about 200 books and we set about to figure out why they they sell or don't sell and I was hoping to find something that would be in my control like what could I do that would make my book better able to sell like that seemed like it was something I was interested in and the the sad sort of answer at the end of that was there there was literally nothing like I tested hundreds of book characteristics and there were <laughs> there were only like a few that had any connection to sales I actually I think it's it might be like eight I, I have the actual numbers here yes I have there were eight book characteristics that were correlated with sales and every single one of them was 
um, a marketing factor. Like there was literally nothing else besides marketing. And we did a bunch of other sort of tests to try to see if that was really true or not. And then the statistician helped me figure out like, how do we factor out marketing so that we can see, is there something that is making them sell or not sell after you factor it out? The answer to that was not really. There was there was one characteristic that we can talk a little bit more that also makes me laugh a little bit because once you factor out marketing, there's one that it's not quite like statistically significant, but like it's almost there. And so there's like because humans are little chaos monkeys, like you sometimes have to look at those almost as if they might tell you something. But anyway, the one that was the only one that was not a marketing factor that almost had a connection to sales was was a, a quote called like the book made me feel yearning and it was like a true or false question on our long questionnaire that made me laugh really hard because i i write ya and so like it's like all about the yearning and that that made me laugh but it was mostly just very depressing because it was like oh it's just it's just marketing and there not only that and so i continued studied it for a lot of years and i got i've gotten grants over the years and i've had research assistants over the years and consulted with different publishers over the years because they don't always understand why things are selling or not selling but yeah i didn't write again for a long time the next book that i wrote i wrote a book about a plague and i wrote it in 2019 and my agent decided to go on the market with it in june of 2020 and nobody really wanted to read a book about a plague in june of 2020 so my publishing of fiction continues to be a very depressing subject but i've published some nonfiction in the meantime <laughs> I, I will say when i started out looking at publishing because my deal size was good and the, the first thing I started looking at is like right what are all the things that can go wrong because I have a, a doom mm -hmm. brain that focuses on all the things that can go wrong and basically my conclusion after looking at lots of things and talking to lots of people is the book probably won't go wrong as long as they spend enough money on it it might underperform for what they want but it will still sell <laughs> as long as someone is giving it a good shove. I mean, I, I think one of the things that I was interested in when I was reading the thread is you're talking about how books perform in brackets relative to their marketing. Um, that was partly um, just like, I, I think part of that was the way that we had to get the data. So I, yeah. I, 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 I mentioned before we started recording that I tried to buy data from Nielsen. So Nielsen BookScan records a ton of data about book sales, about point of sales for all kinds of titles all over. And I had a grant and uh, $5,000 of it was, was allowed to be able to be spent on data of this grant. And so I tried to buy data from Nielsen and they found out, first they're like, oh, you're an author, sure, that's fine. And then they, they found out that I was a, a professor and they're like, no, sorry, we won't, we won't give you this data. <laughs> And I was like, why? And they're like, you might study it. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> I would like to study it. And they're like, no, you need to have an industry interest. And I'm like, I'm literally a writer, I do. <laughs> and they were like, no, sorry. So they wouldn't give it to me. And that was frustrating. And so we used a, a bunch of sort of workarounds. And, and I actually found like most publishing people were very cagey and didn't want to talk to me about this. Um, I had a couple of editor friends who all like on conditions of anonymity they would never like tell me their names and they would never let me speak about them on the records but what they did do is they would say okay here's some assumptions that you can say are true or false um and so they said like if a book has a bigger deal size like if we sp spend more like on the advance then it's going to 
sell better than if it doesn't. And that was one of the things they said. And then they said, and also like a series, sometimes what they can do is if they do a three book series, they can take the entire marketing budget for three books and put it in the first book, which makes the first book launch harder. And then the rest of the books sort of borrow off of that marketing. So it has more marketing that way. And so they told me a couple things like this that were not specific and not by house and not about anything like in there that they, they felt like they could tell me. They still even didn't want me to ever use their names in public or even the places they worked. At least one of them has left publishing at the time. So I probably could could reveal the publisher she worked at, but I won't. Then after that is I used, based on some of that that little the information that they were willing to give me, I went to Publishers Marketplace and they have deal classifications of books. And so like they have like the nice, the very nice, the good, and, they, and each one corresponds to a certain number of dollars in the advance. And what that let me do is sort of create five different categories for the advance size. And so that's, I think that's kind of how it ended up being in brackets that way, like it was marketing score based. And so working with the statistician, what I did is we created an algorithm that, that first what we did is we measured each one of these things in correlation to sales. Um, and to get sales numbers, that was a little tricky at the time. What we ended up doing was using multiple different online metrics. I say we, I mean, I, I did this. <laughs> I did have people that helped me online that read a lot of books. I read about 200 of the books in the sample. The sample size I have right now is about 500 books big. It's a random, it's a demonstrably random sample. And so we took every single YA deal report that was in Publishers Marketplace that specified the deal size or that specified that it was an auction or a preempt or any of the things the editors had said might lead to a higher marketing budget. And so then we, we did, I did something called um, a, a Pearson's correlation. So a, a Pearson coefficient, what it does is it, it's, a, it's a way to measure the extent that one set of variables will increase or decrease as another set of variables increases or decreases. So if sales, if um, marketing goes up, do sales go up? So those are like two different sets of numbers. So once you have two right. sets of numbers, you can see if they're correlated. And there's some limitations of a Pearson's co correlation. Like it can only spot a correlation. It can't spot causation. So like you can't, you can sometimes like guess. So like one of the ones that was a little tricky was, so there is a correlation, a strong correlation between the number of Amazon ratings that a book has and how well it sells. And is this a causative thing? And so like I've seen like self-pub presses will say like, try to get as many people as possible to review it because that will increase sales. I'm not actually sure that that's true. I think that books that are selling better tend to have more reviews. Um, so that's an example of a, one of the limitations of a, a Pearson relationship co coefficient that you calculate. Yeah. So Can basically I... it's this number between, go ahead, yeah. No, yeah, finish out the Pearson thing and I'll, I'll go back in a second. Yeah, so a Pearson's correlation, it's a, it's a number that's between negative one and one. Zero is there's no correlation between the two sets of variables. Negative one means there's a perfect one-to-one -one linear correlation that's negative. And positive one means there's a perfect linear correlation that's positive. If, it, if you score up 0.3, that's considered there is a relationship of some kind. It's weak, probably not linear. 0.6 and above, like the absolute value of 0.6 and above, that's a strong correlation. And... The thing about humans is humans are really messy and they have a lot of chaos in their hearts. And so you don't actually really ever get very strong <laughs> correlations with humans. And so I wasn't really expecting to get 
like anything that was above a 0.6. And what I actually did find is once, so we, we tested each of these like hundreds of factors one at a time to look for any correlation. We had the eight that did have a correlation to sales. Um, and they were, the number one correlation to sales was an R, was a coefficient of 0 0.4, which was um, pretty strong. Um, not, not pretty strong. It's not technically strong. It's technically <laughs> in the weak, moderate area. But humans, again, are super messy. Yeah. So that's the size of the author advance. The next one was okay. the relative fame of the author. And we included in that if they'd won any major awards. So like if they had won a Newbery, they got a higher rating than if they hadn't, for example. Um, the third one was carryover. And so that was an association with something famous. Um, and and the, in my dissertation, I called this the twilight effect because there was a little while where if you had a book about a vampire, it would sell super super great and it would do that because twilight was selling well and so the the book didn't actually wasn't twilight it just was associated with something that was famous so i called that carryover it's that association with something else famous yeah so that carryover is that carryover is almost almost writing to trend kind of it, but like the problem like you can't predict what's going to be on trend <laughs> yeah having it, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's yeah. the having happen, you happen to be on trend right <laughs> happen to be on trend and not in like the bad way like writing about a plague in 2019 like that was like not yeah. quite the right kind <laughs> of psychic you need to be like the right kind of psychic if you want to write on trend right. so that one like it's not really in your right. control there's some things that you can do to increase your carryover score like you'll see like people do like new adaptations of fairy tales or something thing and that's like that will give you a little bit of an advantage but not as much as writing about vampires when twilight happens to be going crazy with sales and so that was the the third strongest of the eight that i found the next one was a cover likability score i did a cover likability study three different times with two different groups one i did a high school group and one thing that was interesting was the high school group did not show any correlation at all to sales and i thought that was that was odd and then i did it with college students um, and it was almost as strong as fame, the cover likability correlation with sales was. Um, and I think what it is, is that um, high school students are less likely to buy their own books than college students are. And so if college students liked the cover, it was more likely to sell. That's my theory. I can't verify it, but that's what I, th I think was happening. Okay. Um, so that was up to 0.4, which is about as strong as fame. Um, the number five one was number of Amazon reviews, which I dropped off of a the bigger calculation because I was pretty sure that was not causative. Number of authors Twitter followers came in as as one of the factors which was interesting. I started tweeting after that. I was like, okay, fine. I can do that one. <laughs> I can, can tweet a lot. Like I can't well, like not anymore. <laughs> can't be, well, not anymore because now Twitter's dead. So <laughs> we'll have to see. Yeah. And like Twitter was particularly effective at being correlated to book sales and I think it's because Twitter is a reading medium and this is Again, just speculation. I don't know for sure. And people that are on Twitter are people that like to read. Like they're not. You're, you don't go to Instagram because you like to read. You go to Instagram. You like to look at pictures. And like half the time, you don't even read the little captions. But on Twitter, there's only the captions, and that's what people do. And so yeah, that was that was one of the the factors um, was was Twitter followers. And then the seventh thing was starred reviews in particular locations. So for YA, the School Library Journal was really important. Publishers Weekly and Booklist mm -hmm. were really important. And and the last thing that was correlated with sales was crossover appeal. So I was studying YA 
fiction and if it had the ability for adults to buy it it did better so those were the eight factors that were correlated with sales and so those were the only factors that were correlated with sales out of like the like something like 300 different factors that we tested those were the eight that had a correlation with sales they are all marketing factors and almost all not in the control of the author Um, And so then I created an algorithm using those and estimating sort of the various sizes of those correlation to look for a correlation with sales in general. Um, And so now I have an algorithm that can predict book sales. The the Pearson coefficient of is um, 0.7 of marketing and sales in the book market, which was kind of an astounding number when I got it. I was like, humans are not that neat, but this is a neat number this is strong this is a strong correlation like it's very strong 0.7 like i didn't expect to have anything higher than that so yeah can you explain how that 0.7 came about being that these individual factors were all in the 0.4 0.3 range what what does that 0.7 represent is that the aggregate Mm -hmm. uh of all of these what what what's the difference in the analysis there? So it's mostly, it's like it's like an aggregate. You create an algorithmic sort of equation that looks really impressive when you write it down on paper. It's not really that impressive in real life. Basically what you sort of do is you add all of those things together and uh, multiply them by the strength of their original, co- like their original co- correlation. And then you have this new... Mm-hmm additive thing that you can make the prediction that way and you have a new set of numbers and then you can run the correlation so like basically what we could do is for any individual book if I knew how much was paid in the advance and I I, I could figure out the rest of the, the advance was the hardest part and that's why we use the, the publisher's marketplace to do that which was great because authors love oversharing and so there was plenty of data to draw from there but the, once you have all those things you can plug them into the algorithm that we made and it will come out with how likely it is to sell or not sell based on those numbers and it's accurate about 75% of the time actually so we're, we can predict okay. at the point of acquisition with about 75% accuracy how well a book is going to sell so if we gave you numbers hypothetically can you plug them in I can and I have done that yeah because we we had our first year sales we have a rough sense of it sorry I know you've got a bit of lag so we're, we're cutting into each other <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> we're literally all around the globe yes. right now it's kind of awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you gave if I had the numbers, I could plug them into the algorithm and predict whether it was going to sell or not. And I have done this when I've consulted with publishers before. And one of the most important things um, if a publisher will ask me why is this book selling or not selling is to figure out if it's hit the marketing viability threshold mm-hmm. because this was something that I started to notice when I put all of the final numbers together in the sample of these 500 books that I had. I expected there to be, like, my initial idea for the dissertation was I wanted to look at the outliers. Like, I wanted to look at the books that didn't get marketed that sold well anyway. And I wanted to look at the books that got well marketed that flopped. And what I found was there were not really any. So, like, when it came to well-marketed books, there were definitely flops. Like, there was plenty of books that actually really, really tanked. Like, (laughs) I would actually say, like, a lot of the well-marketed books tank. Like, if you're looking at, like, how well they should sell versus how, how well they do sell, probably four out of five of them do not sell as well as they should when they're really, really marketed. But when they do sell, they sell like crazy. Like they, 
they spike off of the charts. Yeah. I'm like, and, and, and from the author perspective, like as long as if you earn out your advance, you're probably going to be fine and they're not going to like look for an excuse to punish you. But like if you don't like that's where it can get dicey and tricky. And so but when it came to the lower end of the market, I found that there were. I, I was looking for any sales spikes, like at all. I wanted one book, two, there was literally zero. There was literally zero for a huge chunk of the sample that I had. And what I found was until you hit this marketing viability threshold, you had zero chance at breaking out. Like not even, not even like one in a hundred. It was literally, there were zero books that did it in the sample. And so often if I'm consulting with a publisher and I run all the numbers, I can say this didn't hit the marketing viability thresholds. That's why it didn't sell, period. It gets a little trickier if it's a little higher because there is some chaos in it because I think like marketing is a little bit like virality, like if you're on Twitter, rest in peace Twitter, but like when you're there, like you never know what's gonna go viral or not. Like a good tweet, maybe it's gonna go viral, maybe it's not, but the, the quality of the tweet has nothing to do with whether or not it's gonna go viral. Like it might be more likely to go viral, but like a good tweet is not enough for it to go viral. It's not, it, there has to be other things that are at play. And I think that happens with book marketing too, where a good book is not enough to sell. And even like a good book post marketing is not always enough to sell. And what actually makes it sell is a little more chaotic, but you will have zero chance at selling if you don't hit the marketing viability yeah. threshold. There is a- Just to review, can you, did you define that marketing viability threshold? Do you know what comprises that or, or rather how did you define it? One of my publications is actually on this. This is called marketing and sales in the U.S. young adult fiction market. It was published in New Writing, which is the international journal for the practice and theory of creative writing. And so what I did in that article was sort of put those numbers out there. Um, and basically, like, the way that I had gotten the total marketing score for any book is I took each one of those individual factors and gave them, like, a, a score. So if you had... Um, a really high advance, like you might have got, get five points instead of one point. And if you have no a really low advance, you'd get zero points for that. And we would add all those points up in the end and then see how high it got. And if it, I, if, if I remember correctly in that sample, it, it was five. I'd have to actually look it up and, and see what the number is. But you had to hit a certain number in that score before it got up. And so usually what that meant was you had to get an advance of... You either, you had to do sort of one of a couple of things. Either one, had to be famous already. Or two, you had to win a major award. Or three, you had to have like a really likable cover. And like when it came to things that you had control of before publication, you had to have a combination of things usually. Like you had to have a likable cover and you had to get an advance of more than $50,000. Or you had to get like, maybe you didn't get an advance of more than $50,000, but you got a three book deal and had a likable cover and you've got a lot of Twitter followers, that would get you over the, the marketing threshold or not. And so it really just depended. It was a book by book thing. And so I've got this massive spreadsheet that has thousands of pages on it and I can plug numbers into it if I know them for an individual book and then I can tell you like oh you scored a four and that's below the marketing threshold or viability threshold or not or I think like in the end like the the score the highest score I think I ever saw for a book was Twilight I ran the numbers on Twilight and it had like something like a marketing score of 16 which was the highest that I've ever recorded most marketing scores were like one or two 
when we did it they were they were really small they they weren't they weren't huge but that's funny i think the only thing i had going for my book probably was the advance in the marketing and, and that was something we were talking about in discord because it did it did sell well this past year and i know that a lot of books don't and i was i was using the example i didn't ha i don't have your brilliant technical language but when i explain publishing to people who aren't in the industry i, I describe it to them as like trying to build a rocket where you need a certain amount of fuel to get lift off and the goal is to have a rocket that gets in self-sustaining orbit and you know something like brandon sanderson i think of sanderson as like this giant moon right he, he's in the sky he's not coming down if he never wrote another word for the rest of his life he would still be this icon floating above us and as a satellite he'd be fine, he would be fine. Uh, you know same for jk rowling she could literally set everything she owns on fire and never write another word she would still have enough money stephen king as well etc and but most rockets it's like they mm -hmm. don't they just don't get the lift off so they don't get the fuel, they don't get the ground support, they fly a bit and they nosedive. And that that's kind of what most book launches is what they look like. You do, you, like, you're there for a month and then you're off the shelves and you're, you're a sales tank. And it's so, so mm -hmm. difficult to get to that, that threshold. I did wonder if, I mean, I know it's not really your area, but obviously indies are having to do all that stuff themselves. I don't know if you ever looked at them at all. And yeah, I didn't study the indie market but I want to at some point because I have a suspicion, like one of the things I've always wondered a little bit that I would like to have a chance to test someday. I would need more mm. research assistance to read 300 books because <laughs> I don't want to read 500 books again. I did that. Huh. I actually, during my dissertation, I spent an entire year doing nothing but reading YA books yeah. to get these 200 books read. So I read one book a day basically <laughs> for an entire year. That was, it was a rough year, it turns out, because a random sample, like, we're better at choosing books that we're going to like than we think we are. And, like, when you have a random sample, you end up reading books that were not meant for you. You're not the audience. And it's it can be very, very, very painful. But, yeah, one of the things I do want to test someday, if I have enough research assistance to, to do this or get another grant big enough to pay them to do this, is I would like to repeat this in an indie market because I might... I have a suspicion that quality might matter more in the indie market, mostly just because there's already gatekeeping and publishing. You've already made it through a slush pile. You've already gotten an agent. You've already gotten acquired from an agent in submission. So there's several levels of sort of quality check before you get to the, the final stage. Like even so, like some books get published and we don't, we read them and it's like, I don't know why this got published. <laughs> and then other books like are beautiful and get published and just don't get published, even though like, they were beautiful books. I, I've read a couple of just wonderful, amazing books that never found a home. And I was, I was always sad about that. And I actually found a couple gems too, when I was doing my dissertation, like where the books were just so good and they didn't get marketing. And I was one time, like one, one of the books I was so sad about, I literally called the editor up on the phone and I was like, listen, this book is amazing. And this cover is killing it. We need to redo the cover. <laughs> And she like, bless her. She was like, okay. And she listened to me and I sent her pictures. I'm like, here's what you need for a cover in this market. And, and they redid the cover and it started doing better. And I was like, okay, yay. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but I, I do have a suspicion that maybe it might matter in indie books, but I'm not sure. Um, because like, I, I don't have the numbers to back it up. I almost wonder if there's just so many indie books that it's like statistically... I don't mean that as a bad thing, but just, you know, there are statistically so many indie mm -hmm. books that something is bound to succeed, almost a kind of spaghetti at the wall approach. But then that's the same with trad. I mean, so w when, books, right. when books that get marketing, 
like big, big books that fail, do they still kind of, is that like relative to their advance, if you see what I mean? Or is it still like, yeah, failure looks different at mid-list from lead title, if, if that makes sense? I wasn't, I wasn't working with like the actual number of sold okay. copies of books because of the debacle with, yeah. with Pearson, Nielsen, the, yeah. not Pearson, um, Nielsen, Nielsen, that wouldn't give me... Nielsen. <laughs> Nielsen. But I my sense was that sometimes really male marketed books fail badly. Like they do yes. just as badly as the non marketed books. Um, but like they're also much, much more likely to spike. And most of the time you get in what you put out is is tends to yes. be what I what I found in the data. Like whatever they put in in marketing you would usually get almost that back. Like not always, but like usually you would at least break even. Uh, and so like publishing is sort of this weird game where like any individual book isn't really making them any money. Um, but they thrive off of those breakouts, the ones that sell millions of copies for no reason that they can identify in the courtroom. Um, and those are where you get a lot of the profit that happens in, in, in publishing and creating that sort of thing like it requires a great deal of marketing but marketing isn't a guarantee for it and so it's like one of those tricky tricky looks very aware i'm oh, sorry i'll say this last thing let scott take over i was very aware over the past year that the, the things that made the biggest difference to my book sales were almost like these tiny individual s decisions by specific people you know the the crate team liking it or the right person at, at bnn saying oh yeah we'll take it for a, a monthly pick or the right person at waterstones agreeing to do a special edition and like there are about five or six decisions, I think, by basically a handful of people at the right time and right place that made a difference of thousands of copies. Like literally, like you uh -huh. know, if you get if you get into like a monthly pick, it makes a huge difference. If you get into all, all these other things, special editions of crates and all that, they all really help or the right review at the right time. And it's just it's staggering that it's like you could have a near miss with that, and it will be a difference of uh -huh. ten to eighty thousand sales or something insane. <laughs> Sorry, Scott, go on. It's true. It's true. And like things, some of the things that ended up mattering a lot that were strange were things like the book just had a really prominent display at Walmart because somebody at Walmart decided to make a display of the book. And it's like one person's decision will change the life of that book forever. It's, it's, it's interesting. And so uh, as I'm sitting here listening to all of this, reading through your excellent PowerPoint that I believe we will link in the show notes. Absolutely. Your top factor is size of author advance and mm -hmm. all of these things that both of you just mentioned. So Sun Yi with her, you know, book of the month pick, somebody at Walmart making a display, book making it on a display at BNN, whatever it is. Uh, I suspect even editor picks on Amazon, etc. Mm -hmm. Those are not so random as they appear, right? And that's something that Sun Yi and I and our Discord and various people talk about quite a lot is that a lot of those things happen because behind the scenes uh, the publisher puts an effort into making that happen, right? They have, uh, as we learned on our bookseller episode, publishers have sales reps that go talk to bookstores and sell into bookstores, uh, basically tell them to order a certain amount. They have people who are pushing these things in in all of their various channels where they can sell and it <laughs> my theory is i'm i'm fairly positive that those activities behind the scenes even so even simple things like whether they print arcs for a book right those are all highly correlated to the size of the author advance 
Yes. Because they have to make their money back, right? Like if they exactly. handed out a lot of money, they have to. They then assign internal resources to go get that money back, uh, at the very least, if not, you know, get some multiple back to make it worth their time from a profit perspective. And they're typically making those decisions like ahead of time too. Like the editors are filling out profit and loss estimations when they're going to acquire a book where they're like, this is how many we think we can sell. And they, they compare it to like other books that maybe have sold, but it's all just like a guess. And then it sort of becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because if they think it can sell a lot, they give it more marketing and then it does. Um, and I think one thing that's kind of interesting, I think about all those little points you were talking about on this, the sales distribution channel is some of the decisions about a book like they're not necessarily made by people who have read those books like sometimes they yeah. are which is great when they are but they're they're not always like sometimes it's just like oh we need a YA book or something and this yeah this this is this is the lead title that gets pushed a lot and it's got a pretty cover or something like that is enough to make a book sell sometimes yeah and and to your point none of these things that ended up as high correlation items with sales are things that would necessarily uh, influence a, an acquisition and a PL at acquisition, right? Like maybe the relative fame of the author, if it's an existing mm -hmm. author with other works, right? Like that, that certainly matters. Carryover or writing on trend might matter, but publishing moves so slow that even an editor who's acquiring and has owns the schedule for their publisher doesn't necessarily know what will be breaking out at the time that that book's coming out, right? Because it's not necessarily right. uh, up to just them. It's a broader market trend that they don't control. Cover, that's not determined at time of acquisition necessarily. You know, number of Amazon reviews, obviously not. Author Twitter followers, maybe. But yeah, I this... mean, just the, the, the degree to which things are, are determined right at the point of acquisition is, is pretty crazy. And this mm. is like, I think... I think, I don't have proof for this, but this is my private theory that I think this is why high concept has become such a dominating phrase in publishing, because when you have a book that's high concept, and, and just, I assume most people know what that is, but in case any listeners don't, high concept basically is like a book that's easy to summarize, that sounds good as a pitch, so you know, you can summarize Divergent as like, not Divergence, um, Hunger Games as kids are fighting in gladiator battles for food. Whereas Old Man of the Sea is not high concept because it's uh, a man goes fishing and it's all in the execution and the concept sounds a bit pants <laughs> until you actually read it. But high concept is easier to sell in that way. That If right. you have a book, you're trying to get what Nick Binge called the hype train. It's a lot easier for your editor to go to the sales rep and say, here's this snazzy idea. And for the sales reps mm -hmm. to go to their B&N stores and stuff and go, here's this snazzy idea. And all the way down the chain, the, if the book is easier to sell, that's helping it as well, I suspect. I think that's absolutely true, and like I think like like a tweet length synopsis kind of is what you have really, and I think like part of that is that like the way that the 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 success of the, of the book is determined at acquisition is through the size of the author advance and whether or not it's going to be in a series and how many books are required and whether or not there's an auction, and. Um, Part of that is in the room of the acquisition meeting is are the marketing people and they're not the people that have read the books and they're going to decide how many books can I sell based on that pitch, that very short synopsis. Like and so like that that tweet length pitch becomes really important for a book's success or failure is like the ability to sell it 
in like 200 characters. And if you can, like it'll do better because you'll convince the marketing people. And if you convince the marketing people, you get more money. And that's what sells books is marketing. Yeah, I used to wonder why everyone kept summarizing my book as like, oh, it's just about eating books. I was thinking that is like a t- 2% of the actual novel. And then I realized that that was the hook that they were selling it on, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, people are reading it thinking, oh, it'll be about people who eat books, even though that's it's not really and I think that that disappoints some readers but anyway that's a whole other thing (laughs) no it's true like that 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 short pitch matters a lot it's how how it's what creates Mm -hmm. that sort of viral earworm that gets people to try it and then the book itself can do all sorts of things and if it's a surprising book like great it's awesome but and even like and then if the book is exactly what you expected it to be that's also good so that it just it's really important to have that initial short marketable pitch and and just so i i hit on this to to clarify you did look at even if they were subjective you looked Mm -hmm. at quality of writing type categories right factors how did how did that go like how did you measure subjective quality factors Mm -hmm. and what did the analysis look like so i did a couple of different things to try to get at, at at that kind of a question and so on on a very simple level one one thing i would do is i would rate the quality of book like scale of one to ten like and then i would do paragraph level ratings like what's the sentence level paragraph level of style like how complex is the language um and i would i would do that or i would do we i tested something like 12 different emotional words like this book made me feel stressed this book made me feel romantic this book made me feel anxious or like i you know a bunch of I don't remember exactly how many. I think it was 10 or 15 of those. Yearning was the one that actually had possibly a result that was happening. And so, and then I also used three or four or five potentially different plot structures. So we looked at different plot theories of how, how stories are shaped and formed. And we tested the the Campbell's Hero of Thousand Faces monomyth plot. Um, it came out as being way too like sexist and racist which shocking everybody that knows Campbell is shocked by that and was not terribly predictive of how a book was going to do there was one plot theory though somebody had written a plot theory that was supposed to be a female counter to the Campbell cycle because Campbell is like super masculine Mm. and so somebody did a feminine version of it and that one actually did occasionally hit some some points when we not until we factored marketing out did it start to get close to it but like it was and I, th- I think that was a demographic thing that happened but it it was there was some interesting disconnects that that I found when I started to compare some of those different metrics against what was selling or not selling um, or what kinds of marketing a book was getting or not getting which was like that books that were too female were not getting as much marketing as they should have but most of the reading market was female and so they were selling much better than they should have because they just didn't get the same marketing as another book did same thing was true with race where mm-hmm. books by it wasn't just books by people of color because those were pretty consistent number wise but when you started to factor in a couple different racial factors you found that books that were about race books that talked about race they did not get as much marketing as the other books did and so they had correlated low sales but when you did the i called it a resonance score when i i subtracted how well a book did sell from how well it was supposed to sell 
um, based on the marketing. Like the marketing would predict a certain number of sales and then I'd compare that to how it actually sold. And those books were selling really much better than their marketing predicted that they would. And so that was an interesting sort of disconnect that was in the data too. It was, I think it was a confirmation of something that a lot of people already knew about the world at large, but um, it was interesting to see. So. So yeah, like I, there was a lot of different sort of things that we tested that were like that, but like in the most of the ratings myself. So I guess there's some some bias in what did I think was quality or not, <laughs> but nothing that I could, as a, a person with a, a PhD in writing, could identify as quality um, had any correlation to sales. So and and you've got one of your categories is number of Amazon ratings. Did you look at actual Amazon scores or Goodreads scores and how those correlated? Yes. So we recorded, I, I don't think we did Goodreads because it wasn't as robust back in, I was working on this in 2011 was when I graduated, oh, but yeah, we true. did Amazon reviews. We, we collected all of those and there was a correlation between the Amazon, not the score itself, not how, how, how many people liked it or didn't like it. There was not a correlation between that, but there was a correlation between the number of reviews. So better selling books got more reviews. And I don't feel like that's a causative correlation. And so I, when I created the algorithm to predict how well a book should sell based on marketing, I didn't include Amazon ratings when I did that. Sure. So yeah. So the number of reviews mattered, but the actual score, like a three didn't. or a four or a 4.5, et cetera, did not. Very no. interesting. Yeah, like Scott did a very, very small informal study where he looked at that and that sort of, that was something he was very convinced of as a on good reason on Amazon. Like it did, kind of doesn't matter if your book gets doesn't. like three stars or 4.8 stars. Well, yeah, <laughs> just... I was, I was, re <laughs> I was re like, if people hate a book, it can be good. I was really bummed as I, you know, yeah, I was really bummed as I watched my Goodreads score sink over time, which is something that happens to all books, even ones that end up with a really good score. But I and I spent a, a good amount of time thinking, well, I guess I just didn't write a good book. Time to move on. Right. But one day I I just <laughs> decided to compile the scores of a whole bunch of books that had released in the last two or three years. And there are some really weird anomalies of books that end up with really high scores that it just doesn't make sense to me, at least. Uh, like, just weirdly high. Like, these books that don't seem any more popular than others or any better than others in any obviously subjective way end up with, like, a 4.5 and stick there. But anyway, I looked at, I think, close to 50, 50 or, or so releases from either debut or newer authors in the last two or three years, and there was absolutely no correlation between Goodreads. I didn't look at Amazon scores, but Goodreads scores and uh, the number of Goodreads scores, if that makes sense, which number of Goodreads uh, ratings was my proxy for sales. And I was mm -hmm. very surprised to find that. I, I had believed a, at least a little bit more in Goodreads ratings um, before that, yep. but... But yeah, same was true with Amazon. We couldn't find any relationship between the actual score or the number of stars. Just just the number of reviews was the only correlation. Like, like basically any rating of quality that we could think of, like, you know, that we looked at 
there just wasn't there was nothing that connected quality to sales i still haven't found anything if you find something like i'm looking for it like it would i would like to believe it's there i mean i don't know that it's true like like having been on twitter for a couple of years now and and seeing like how random it is what goes viral and what doesn't and when is more likely to go viral and when is not and to kind of understand that algorithm there i think i understand a little better how the marketing does work and that it won't necessarily ever have anything to do with quality alone (laughs) but like i think every now and then quality like i still have this hope that like maybe like a really great book that takes your breath away maybe that will like affect it and i think that that it's true it does but it's just it's just not enough to create a big spike in sales it's it's never going to be enough to actually drive the sales the sales is going to be driven by outside market forces. I mean, because publishing is a business. It, it follows laws of business, not laws of art. It's not, it's, we, we, we have like these weird little capitalist brains that have, have tied those two together that says that beautiful quality art is going to sell really well because we have this like prosperity gospel that we believe, but it's just not true. Mm-hmm. Like the, the books that ha- are approached the way a businessman is going to approach it and that sell it the way that people sell things, like those are the books that are going to do well and it doesn't actually have anything to do with what's inside the book. Yeah, and, and I think it'd be too hard to measure anyway right? Mm -hmm. Just because taste is so subjective and even quality is so subjective, right? Like writing that I find horrible and unreadable, other people don't seem to mind at all and vice versa. But I think it's worth pointing out that something you said earlier, that even the strong correlations per your study are statistically moderate or even weak. And so there is a lot of chaos still built into mm-hmm. the system. It's just that there is a, uh, you know, you, you mentioned your 0.7 Pearson coefficient for marketing as a catch-all category. Mm-hmm. And that, and particularly in terms of hitting that minimum marketable or minimum marketing viability threshold, uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. I think there's there's still a lot of subjectivity and, and quality quote unquote that goes into it but yeah without having hit that threshold that people just don't even know about it to to give it a chance to grow on its own that's true and i think that's that i think that's really the core of it is people can't read a book until they've heard about the book and hearing about a book we want to believe in word of mouth and like there's it's possible that that has some sort of effect but it doesn't have a measurable effect that i could find a way to measure but the yeah. marketing is how you get people to hear of a book, and if you hear of the book, then then the book sells. There are some examples I can think of yeah. which are outliers, and people often cite them in these conversations. I guess the classic one that I hate having dragged up is Fifty Shades of Grey, which was like apparently a genuine world amount of success. But I don't know how you feel about it, but my my sense on it is that these outliers are just so far outside that we can't really learn anything aside from the fact that outliers exist. If that makes sense, like you can't replicate Fifty Shades of Grey, you can't replicate jk rowling was just yeah you can't you can't replicate it but you probably could have predicted that it would have done a, done well because for one it, it would have had a high carryover because it started as twilight okay. fiction, <laughs> so it had an existing group of people that already were into it so that already puts it that high carryover That's score probably gets it above the viability threshold and it also like there's a couple other things that it particularly had like it had popularity before it was picked up mm. was another thing which means that then you're going to have a higher advance and i don't know the actual advance for that book but i imagine that it was probably 
even if it was just like one category above the lowest level because there's the nice and the very nice like it only took like one category above the normal level the most most books like 80 percent of books were only like got in the nice category which was up to I don't remember. Do you remember if it's up to twenty thousand dollars, up to fifty thousand dollars on to, publishers marketplace? It's up to I think 49. it's fifty. Well, forty nine 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 nine, which is like up to fifty. Yeah, forty nine. Yeah. Isn't so I like, think yeah. she was. So like, if you have a oh, sorry, I was just gonna say I think she's picked up by a small press first, but then an editor allegedly. I mean, these stories are always spun into myths, but they are. It's part of the marketing. Allegedly, an editor heard people talking about it. At, at the school get yeah the marketing for jk Rowling. oh she's rejected those <laughs> not really <laughs> and she actually got a lot of money for the books too and like like stephanie meyer got a lot of money yeah. for those books like it was something like a six hundred thousand dollar advance mm-hmm. that she got for a three book deal and so like that was enough to put it in the the major deal category the highest category so like even if like you're just in that very nice category yeah. that you're making a little bit more than fifty thousand dollars in the advance like you only need a couple points to get into the viability threshold um, it's just that most books don't don't even get that high. So, like, the vast majority of books, I think, like, 80% of the sample yeah. was in the nice yep. category, which was less than $50,000. In one of our episodes, yeah. we, we did a kind of direct launch day comparison for me and Scott and, you know, basically found that, it, you know, it was, it was correlated quite strongly where I had 10 times the advance he did and I had about 10 times the sales on the UK side. Oh, sorry, USA side. Um, can't compare UK because he didn't get a UK release. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> I I <laughs> I, ca- I kind of hate that this carryover category that you've mentioned and been talking about a little bit is somewhat justifying the retelling trend that we've seen lately, where everything is well, marketed as a retelling. Even if it's I not. mean, it's a, it's a, it's it's a decision that's a marketing decision. It's not an art decision. It doesn't lead to better art. It leads to more sales, and that's yeah. the people that are making those decisions about greenlighting yeah. it are the marketing people is why so the retellings that's why there's a lot of them and that's why there's a lot of remaking of movies is because it will sell they know it will sell it's more of a a guaranteed deal yeah totally makes sense so uh, just a couple questions that i i picked out from our conversation so you one of your categories is is twitter followers and you i think mentioned instagram briefly but did you look at other social media sites and other places where authors might have followings and analyze those? Or was Twitter the only um, one? We recently looked at TikTok because we'd heard a lot about book talk and everyone's like, this is how you're going to sell a lot of, lot of copies. We were not able to determine a correlation to TikTok. Number of followers or number of videos or number of views for a particular video. That could be partly because when you have a random sample, a random sample has drawbacks and it has advantages. Like the advantages, you get a clearer sense of what's actually happening without the spin, without the, without the people saying like, oh, this was such a surprise when it's really not a surprise at all mathematically when you look at the numbers. And so like the random sample is helpful that way. But like when you're trying to go from the other side and you, and you don't have that random sample, you sort of just see the product of all of that and you don't actually see what went into it and so one of the things that was tricky about looking at tiktok was that most of the authors in our random sample were not even on tiktok and so there was a very small percentage of the authors who had any sort of tiktok presence and it was not enough to determine with any sort of statistical significance 
whether or not it had an effect. My instinct would be that like the bigger of a following or audience you get, the more books you're just going to sell that because any sort of fame is fame and fame is correlated to sales. So if you're TikTok famous, you're probably going to sell more. But that's not something that I was able to reproduce with numbers. Um, on TikTok. Yeah, that's very interesting. I w- and it being that this, this was put together back in 2011, I wonder if there was some microcosm of Twitter at the time and whether people were more engaged versus now where there are a lot of writers on Twitter um, and maybe not as many readers. Yeah, I mean, it's hard hard to know, although I, 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 every time that we've... I, we, every time I get, like, a grant for more research assistance, I update my sample and we expand it a little bit more and we gather more data. And so far, Twitter has always been significant. Like it's always had an effect on on sales, the number mm-hmm. of followers. And at a lower number that, than yeah. you would think, like that was that was part why I think I decided to finally write, try to write another book in 2019 was that I had, you only needed to have like 3,000 followers before you started to notice a mathematical effect on the sales. But like once you, and then after that, like every 5,000 more, it would go up and up and up. And so by the time you have, like I have almost 25,000 followers right now, like that alone is enough to put a book into the viability threshold. Oh, wow. um, 25,000 followers on, on Twitter is. Okay. So yeah. like that was something that stayed consistent. And yes, the demise of Twitter has made me sad as somebody that studies book marketing because there is not a good alternative yet. That, that Especially not one that's big enough with enough effects that we can measure yet. So it'll be years before we know if anything else is going to replace Twitter with that. I've got two questions, if that's okay. So the first is, did you look at Twitter followers in relation to ratios? So mm-hmm. like people who have 20,000 followers, but they follow 20,000 people. And the second question is, what is publishing's response to your data? I mean, you mentioned teaching publishers why their books didn't sell, but do, like, does anyone actually act on this or you know, take it on board? <laughs> so yes, I, we looked... Like <laughs> We looked at the both the ratio of followers and following, and it didn't really seem to matter. I think part of that was that like there weren't most people that have a lot of followers aren't necessarily following everybody back, and so like there was only a couple people that like followed a hundred thousand people and then had a hundred thousand followers and but it did not affect the numbers as a whole so when we aggregated it together, like what we didn't do is I didn't take like all the people at those kinds of artificially inflated ratios and test them alone and separate them but but as part of the group Mm. it didn't seem to matter Um, so just the number of followers was the one that there was the correlation nothing else seemed to have any sort of correlation and then the the next question you said is like what do publishers do I, I mean I, they don't usually tell me what they do when I talk to them. Like every now and then, like I'll, I'll, you know, I'll consult with them and I'll talk to them about like some books or things. And sometimes like I'll see the book re-released with a new cover or, or something, or they'll, they'll tell me like, Oh yeah, we, we, or, or every, but like, they never are surprised by the data. Like I think that the editors aren't exposed so much to the the numbers and the hard marketing things that like the marketing department is. So sometimes they're like, they still have that secret hope that they can find a book that's really great and it will sell because it's great, not because it's it's marketed. I think, but they're they're never terribly surprised to realize like, oh no, it's actually true <laughs> that it's just the marketing. I mean, I think one of the limitations is that there's only so much money you have ahead of time to invest. And so if you've got this like big 
pool of money and you're going to invest it. It's not unlimited. And so they have to decide where are they going to put it. And so they tend to try to put it behind the books that they already are thinking are going to do well so they don't lose a bunch of money because they can lose a lot of money on a book. Like it's happened before and it, it happens frequently. I would say actually like more books don't quite sell as well as they would hope than the ones that do. And there's always like this sense of surprise, like when a book does a lot better than expected. There's even the people in the publishing are like, oh, hey, <laughs> look what we have here. This is exciting. <laughs> like like most of the, the people that I... We threw it off a cliff and it flew. And it flew. <laughs> <laughs> like most of the publishers I met, like they really, they want the books to sell. And they and, and not just that, like they're not just like crave and they don't go into publishing because they just want to make a lot of money. Like that's it's kind of funny actually um but like they but they are constrained by the fact that it's a, a business and if their books don't make money yeah. then they don't have a business and I think that's hard for a lot of them because they have these idealistic senses of like I am going to be the one that makes the quality books sell and it's and I think that they can influence things they can influence trends and they can you know they can choose things or not choose things but like some of it is kind of out of the immediate control of the editors for sure the marketing department not as much but even then like they're looking for very particular things in the marketing department like they're looking for carryover they're looking for something they can pitch they're looking for something easy to blurb something easy to hook and sell in a very short amount of time and that's not necessarily something that has anything to do with the quality of the book because some books are very like nuanced and, and complicated and you can't give like a tweet length summary of the book and have it sound like anything good that ability to do it quickly is that is a marketing key that's important yeah per your analysis it still just makes no sense to acquire a book develop it publish it and not reach that marketing viability threshold though so i hope that that's something that publishers catch on to because that's yeah on a basic level yeah. like I don't think they're wrong to do that and I think like you know we're we are all grown-ups we understand that some books have a wider commercial reach than others we understand that like Stephanie Meyer books are just going to sell more on release day than like random person John Smith in the corner and that's kind of fine it's just I think where my issue comes into it with is that we publishing seems very invested in believing in this myth like this cultural industry myth that all the books are starting this foot race on an equal footing when in fact some of them are starting this foot race with like without shoes while others are literally like on a motorcycle or something and it's just <laughs> it, it that's the part that bothers me you know is I know that not all books can get equal funding it's it's the pretense that we are all on the same footing in the same competition with the same yeah and I think part of that is like a marketing thing itself. Like you want to have the, the myth of a book, the myth of the, the hidden gem that came out of nowhere. Like it's like the, the author who wrote her first book when she was three. And like, you know, like these are stories that are told. Like marketing is a story that's told. It's not actually has anything to do with, with, with the reality. I think that like the publishers, I think they don't always know what the minimum marketing threshold is as part of the problem. Like they always are a little surprised every now and then when like I find a book, they're like, we don't know why this book didn't sell. It was amazing. 
And it's like, well, it got a vi- it got a score of four that didn't hit the viability threshold. And they're like, what? <laughs> they're like, what do you mean it didn't hit the viability threshold? So like, they don't always have like that same very clear mathematical algorithm in front of them the way that I did. They didn't. They don't have like the thousands of spreadsheets of data. I mean, I think somebody at the publisher does, but it's not the editor who's doing the profit and loss sheet together that's trying to sell a book to the acquisitions committee. It, it's yeah, it, it would be somebody else, and I, I'm not familiar enough with the inner workings of, of the publisher to know exactly who that would be. <laughs> the Was it the Random House publisher that said in court that like that they just had no idea what made a book sell or not sell? I think that was... I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that they always do have a sense. Like, they do and they don't. Like, I think that they don't want to... I think not a single one of us wants to give up that secret hope that quality is enough to make a book sell better. It's just not. And, like, that's a sad thing you have to accept if you're going to write books is to know that writing is one thing and art is one thing, but publishing is a business. It's not going to follow art rules. It's going to follow business rules. And that's a hard thing for artsy people to swallow. I think even publishers, it's hard for them to believe that, that it's true. Even if they've seen the numbers, and they've seen it happen over and over again, and they're depressed by it themselves. Like, they don't know how to change it, or they, they just don't want to accept it, I think. And I'm like, I, I feel that. I secretly think that, like, my next book is going to be amazing. It's such a good book. It's going to sell so well. Yeah, and we'll just see how that goes. But <laughs> I just can't believe they're not beating down your door, desperate to get this algorithm. I mean, if I was an editor, I would be scratching at the window. <laughs> well, I mean, these publishers have much more granular data mm-hmm. than you are able to access, right? As mentioned before that author advance size is really a proxy right. for many different things that happen behind the scenes at publishers. Yes. And so my frustration is that there is apparently nobody doing basic <laughs> linear regression of activities, you know, put into a book and the result, like y- just fucking do it. <laughs> it's not that hard. You can do it in Excel. You can do it like, just do it. It, it, Like linear regression is something that I think I learned in like ninth grade. It's not that hard. Anyway, um, I have to get at least one. uh, One rant in. I I have to get, I have to get at least one rant in per episode. Um, And that, I think that's what frustrates me the most is that like, they pretend that it's like, oh, well, you know, you didn't have the platform or, oh, your book just didn't, you know, catch on with people. And it's like, well, okay, but like how many people saw it, you know, and and what did you do and what factors matter? And it really was frustrating to ask what factors matter and just get, get nothing, nothing back. I think like it's a combination of the fact that like, I think some of that, those calculations are being done, but I don't think they're being done by the people we're most, most likely to talk to, which are usually editors. Like the editors are not the ones doing yeah. linear aggression. Oh yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not frustrated with the editors on, on this point. I'm, I'm frustrated with whoever, as you're saying, uh, whoever's calling the shots there because they do have the data. I'm not convinced they have run these analyses at all because if they if they had they would theoretically arrive at this same conclusion that hey there's a minimum viable threshold that if we don't get all of our books to that minimum viable threshold there's no chance that they could be breakouts and be a surprise success right and in that case the the policy and maybe maybe this is where people are moving publishers are moving the policy corporate policy that makes sense in that case is just don't acquire books unless you're going to put a lot of money into them. 
you know, like it, it just doesn't make sense. Well, and it, it's really not surprising because in my, my last corporate job, it wasn't my job to be doing things like statistical analysis. I just happened to be trained in it. And I remember one time, this is maybe, I'll have to obfuscate some of this a little bit so I don't get in actual legal trouble. I came back from vacation one time and there was this whole huge issue with a major metric that the company I worked for followed religiously. It was their primary metric on on how happy people were with our service. And it was correlated internally to all sorts of different things about how, you know, how likely big partners were to churn uh, uh quit our quit our company basically and it had gone down by a lot of points all of a sudden nobody knew knew why they everybody's good at following really basic charts of very basic data but when shit changes they are they are completely lost and this this is like a, a five six billion dollar company with a lot of theoretically smart people that were just lost and all I had to do was linear regression. And you have to dig into the data. You have to make sure your data is good. You have to make sure that you're, you understand where all the data is coming from and what could be a, pot a potentially confounding factor and, and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there just really aren't people that take the time to go look at, hey, what kind of activities are we doing? And when we do it, what happens? When we don't do it, what happens? And mathematically, what does that look like? So it's not surprising to me that this is like a revelation, but I hope that it becomes less of a revelation because whether it's because they're listening to this or, or they just realize that math can help them, they catch on to how, how easy this is. <laughs> to actually get some actionable insight. So uh, just in case, you know, any of the, the various publishing people who are listening to this actually want to get in contact with you or find you, um, where would they find you online? And, you know, f generally feel free to plug yourself just so that people know who you are. And yeah, in case they do actually ever want to find you to get some information. So you can find me on social media in a lot of places at swilua that's s-w-i-l-u-a it stands for she who is like unto aphrodite and it's a joke that went awry from a long long time ago i used to teach at byu which is a very very religious school and they were always trying to call me sister instead of like doctor or professor or anything and that was kind of a problem because like in this mormon church women don't really have a lot of power and so like sometimes that people would be like you can't give me a grade or whatever and that was always really stressful so i would always try to like say like you have to or you should call me like doctor it was spencer back then but eventually like they always had they always struggled with it so i started putting it in the syllabus and then one year and it was a joke it was definitely meant as a joke i wrote like a list in the syllabus and i was like you can call me dr spencer you can call me professor spencer you can call me she who was like into aphrodite and the problem with BYU students is they're very, very, very sincere and they didn't realize it was a joke. And so they legitimately called me by like the full title of she who's like into Aphrodite for the whole semester. And it got so embarrassing at a certain point that like I shortened it to Swalua and then it just became like this massive inside joke. And here we are 
gosh, it's maybe 20 years later. Who knows? Um, so that's my handle on most social media sites, Twitter, Spoutable, Post, wherever, whichever one survives the demise of Twitter. There's a little underscore on Instagram and threads at the end of Spalua, but I think if you search Spalua, you can find it. Um, you can also buy my book, which is called I Spoke to You with Silence. It's a collection of nonfiction essays from queer Mormons. And I think that's all. If you want to read or buy a book and you're an editor and you want to buy a book that's about like a plague, then you should talk to my agent and I can give you his email address. Just DM me. But (laughs) no, that's brilliant. Thank you. I was looking forward to a lot. It was really, really interesting. Thank you so much. And now I really want to like use your algorithm sometime. (laughs) I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time and I had no idea you were ex-Mormon at that point today, really. So now I really feel like I've found a kindred spirit. Thank you for having me on. It's delightful. You've been listening to the Publishing Radio Podcast with Sunny Dean and Scott Drakeford. Tune in next time for more in-depth discussion on everything publishing industry. See you later. See you later.